VanCast coming your way the morning after a cold dose of reality for the Vancouver Canucks as they lose <laughs> 5-1 to the Montreal Canadiens. That was the old slap in the face, Tom. That that was right back to uh, to mid-January, first couple of weeks of the season, Vancouver Canucks. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's nothing good to say about that performance, right? Like... I mean, the Habs controlled 70% of expected goals. They outshot them, what, 43? Like, what was the final tally for the Canucks? It was brutal. Uh, but it was like 24, 45-24. The Canucks allowed yeah. 43 scoring chances and 80 shot attempts. Um, gross. Like, that was a gross performance. And I can't tell if the Habs came out flying or if the Canucks came out flat or a little bit of both. Uh, I think the Canucks came out flat. I, I Sorry, I don't think there's a huge debate on that. But I think the Habs were flying, and I think you do have to give them some credit for that. But man, I mean, this Canucks team, like, you know, the crazy thing about all this is I just feel bad for this fan base that's been through a lengthy rebuild, had some hope. And look, I think it was pretty clear that this team had taken a step back during the offseason. But fans, there are so many people that I debate with and talk to and, you know, seem to be going at online. Like, they just want this team to be good and they love the young talent and they're invested and they see brighter days ahead. And I just don't. And that's okay. But I also just watch a game like last night and I, and I just think like, man, you're a Canucks fan. Like, 51 years of absolute misery. And you see this team and are like, that's the team. That's it. Yes. <laughs> it's just like, man, this team's so limited in terms of what they can do. They got absolutely curb stomped by the Habs last night. And, you know, for all that this past 10 days has been like brighter, right? The, the February is behind us, you know, four, four and five wins, four wins in five games. Right. You know, the Canucks, yeah. the Canucks over the past 10 days gained zero points on a Habs team that just refuses to lose in regulation, right? Even as the Habs have seemed to be reeling, losing games and goaltending controversy and firing a goalie coach mid-game, like the Habs have gained eight points, the Canucks have gained eight points, the Habs have played one fewer game. So they've added to their stockpile of games in hand during that time frame. It's wild to say, but yeah, I mean, just not good enough from the Canucks on Wednesday night in Vancouver. Well, and and let's be honest here, and I just want to pick up on your point, first of all, that Montreal comes to town, takes three of four points out of Rogers. Like, they actually made up ground on the Vancouver Canucks in this two-game set because the Canucks beat them in the shootout and then lose in regulation. So this team that you're chasing comes into your rink and actually takes more points than than you did. The other thing is, like, again, we're just being honest here, right? Like, uh, people watch the game. I don't think we're telling them a whole lot that they don't already know, but try to put it in some perspective here. Tom, the Canucks didn't score an even-strength goal against Montreal. Like, Gaudette scored with a goalie pulled on Monday right. night. They yep. didn't ever have the lead. They played two games against Montreal, didn't ever have the lead. I know they beat the Habs in a shootout on Monday, but they never played with the lead. And last night, uh, yeah, I mean, brutal start. They, the shots were 7 nothing Montreal, and then Kakinami took the stupid penalty, the boarding penalty, on Hamannick. Like, who knows where the shot clock would have been the way that Montreal was controlling play, but... Uh, the Canucks don't score an even-strength goal against Montreal in two games because Brock Besser, and that was sort of the lone bright spot. Like, yeah, serve up more of that. Like, I'm, I'm down for the, the one-timer. Uh, and then Shea Weber felt the need to sort of upstage him with the, basically the <laughs> same goal even harder 
but <laughs> the same goal even harder. That's Wayne. That's but, that's like Shea Weber's epitaph on his career, right? Like, <laughs> what an absolute monster. But but honestly, like, let's just like the Canucks got what they deserved last night. They probably deserved the same on Monday night, but Thatcher Demko was that good, and they managed to hang around until Gaudet could score his goal, but they didn't play particularly well on Monday. We recorded the Tuesday pod and sort of pointed that out, and so it kind of felt like these are the Canucks. They had this coming. Yeah, the three-game win streak, great. They did it without Elias Pettersson. Like, credit to them, but four or five now means nothing because they're right back to square one, and quite frankly... And I know Travis Green was asked about it post-game. Like, was he surprised that for all the strides his team has made here of late, that they could play that bad? And, you know, look, Travis wasn't pulling any punches post-game. Like, there's nowhere to hide, and and he knows that. Called his guys out. Didn't want to focus. Somebody tried to ask him about Jace Howerluck, who probably was the most effective Canuck, and Travis was having none of that either. Like, he just didn't want to go down that road of trying to single out one guy that maybe played better than the rest in a 5-1 loss. But... The bottom line is, these are the Canucks, and so I don't think anybody can, can be shocked that that kind of performance surfaces after a few decent ones. No, no, I don't think so either. I, I mean, in fact, I would say that their decent performances over that win streak were actually, like, that was not the team that we saw in February when we kept talking about, you know, how they've stabilized their defensive form and their two-way game is stronger. Like, they were giving up a ton. They were giving up a ton. You think about that Leafs series where they won two both games, like the chances, the the balance of chances favored the Leafs and not by a slim margin, right? Like it took, uh, you know, the Leafs being on the second leg of a back-to-back game for the 3-2 win, the performance of Jake Vertanen's career to, to beat them in the first game. And then the second game, you've got, you know, a, a brutal Nylander error, a brutal Marner error, a brutal Morgan Riley error, compounded by a broken stick bounce. And it took that for them to take those four points. Um, it's taken like 970 goaltending for them to pull out some narrow wins, right? Like this is a team with no margin for error. Anything they accomplish will be on a knife's edge. And you can't accomplish the like 124 point pace you need to make the playoffs on a knife's edge. Like you have to be overwhelming and undeniable. And there is nothing <laughs> undeniable about this team except for the fact that they're too limited. And you guys pointed it out in the armies. Like, even though he gave up five goals, Thatcher Demko probably was. And maybe not even probably. He was their best player, which again just screams about the performance, top to bottom of the skaters in front of him. Like nobody had it going last night. And and it happens, right? Like in a it's not an 82-game season this year, it's 56. There's gonna be off nights, totally. but man. When the Canucks have their off nights, like, they are exposed, and there's, again, just nowhere for anybody top to bottom in the organization to hide. Like, it was bad last night. It was bad. And so, you know, it brings them to the 30-game mark. I'm a guy that likes big round numbers because it's easy to sort of uh, assess at those goalposts, if you will, in a season. You know, they're 11-15-4. They have 26 points. So I was just curious where they were last season in the season that ran up to the COVID break. And through 30 games in that season, they were 15-11-4. They had 34 points. They were four games above 500. They're four games below 500. So that team, with all its flaws, was four games over 500 at the 30-game mark. But remember, they needed a 14-3 and run as well after the 30-game mark just to be a playoff bumper team. They were right on the bubble when COVID hit. So... 
Again, it doesn't matter. Like, there's so many ways to come at this to sort of illustrate the point that this team is flawed. This team isn't going to make the playoffs. They've got the same number of wins as the Montreal Canadiens. Like, that's the crazy part in all of this. They both have 12 wins as we sit here recording this. It's that the Canucks have 10 more regulation losses than the Habs do 30 games into their season. Crazy. Well, and look, 30 games is also a magic number for me. And, you know, no number is a magic number, in fact. But 30 games tends to be a margin where almost every team will have played about 1,200 minutes at 5-on-5. And that's a number that I like, typically, for gauging team quality. Now, the problem this year is that there's teams like the Dallas Stars, who for COVID reasons have only played, you know, 21 games, and they're not even over a thousand five on five minutes. So it's not something that I would usually like, I'd probably have to wait a couple more games. But typically around the 30 game mark, I make an I write an article and I make a pronouncement, right? And like last year, it was the Canucks are a playoff caliber team. That's what I saw after 30 games. Uh, they had been trending in the wrong direction for about 10, but their first 20 were so strong and their amount of points, um, what you know, their points lead over the rest of the teams in their division was such that I said, you know, this team's probably going to make the playoffs. More likely than not, this team is a playoff caliber team. And this year, uh, pretty sizable step back, right? Like this team is bottom five by shot attempt share. They are the sixth worst team by expected goals. And like, let me just... Let me just read for you the teams worse than them by exp- by the expected goals for and against uh, per natural stat trick. It's the Kings, the Ducks, the Red Wings, the Blackhawks, and surprisingly, the Winnipeg Jets. Um, I mean, that's not the company I think this club was expected to keep this season, right? Like, that, there were higher expectations for this group. Um, it just hasn't come together. And, you know, it hasn't come together despite... Certainly solid goaltending from Thatcher Demko, especially over the second half. Like the last 15 games, they've had really good goaltending. The first 15 games, I think, you know, there was like a five-game stretch there where goaltending looked like a a genuine problem for this team. But like it hasn't been a team that's being, you know, waylaid by by brutal goaltending, which we sometimes see. Uh, The power play definitely has been better than their results. That's sort of the one area you'd point to. PK has been fine. Certainly not the problem. Um, up and down the lineup, like structurally in terms of overall discipline, you know, we haven't seen a ton of gas job performances like we saw against the Habs on Wednesday. Like, I don't think you'd say that effort level has been anything like a consistent problem. And that sort of brings us back to, to, you know, an overall point that I think is worth making, which is that fundamentally too, I think the Canucks are well coached. So if you buy that if you're if you buy my theory that the Canucks are actually pretty well coached, pretty disciplined. Like, then they're even worse in terms of their true talent level than their bad results make it seem, right? Like that has to be a harrowing thought for people. Um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, I just come back to the fact that increasingly I'm beginning to feel pity for, you know, hockey fans in this market. Like I feel I feel bad for them. You know, even the Demko storyline, like even the Demko storyline, so good for 10 days, as positive as positive gets is, you know, not like has a negative tinge to it because of the Ian Clark storyline, because of the expiring deals, right? Because of the DiPietro thing, because of sort of budgetary restrictions that have caused the club to, you know, prioritize saving a buck this season as opposed to doing what's right long term for this hockey team. Uh, hockey. The, f- the fact is, is that for this organization, hockey itself winning has taken a backseat. And, 
you know, you're seeing that result like all over the ice. You're seeing that impact everywhere in every minute that this team plays and in every decision they make. And, you know, that has to be frustrating. The only thing that I think, the only thing at this point that you can take positively from a performance like Wednesday night is that surely no one can watch that performance and think, we should not sell at the deadline. Like, you know, hopefully at least uh, it's becoming crystal clear what this team needs to do. And that is strip mine everything they can for assets that'll help them in 2022-23 when the books are clear enough that a competitive window might realistically open again. Um, Because we're looking at a multi-year timeline. Even the GM knows it. And, you know, it's time to efficiently pursue that. Right. And, and, we're going to get Harmon here in a sec. And, and certainly he pointed out a few weeks back about, you know, where the Canucks are in terms of depth scoring. And it's shockingly low. And to that point, you know, Elias Pettersson out of the lineup. I know they got a couple of wins without him. But look, these last two games against Montreal without Elias Pettersson, the team scored one goal in each of them. And none at even strength. Like, you know, don't tell me that they're fine without Elias Pettersson. And that would be crazy to suggest for a second. But it, it underscores the lack of depth when one guy leaves the lineup. One guy. And he'll be back at some point here. We heard from Travis Green earlier in the week that, you know, it might be another week. So they're going to have to push on. But, again, like injuries happen. The, the, the fact that they got to the 30-game mark or the 26-game mark without anybody in their top six being out of the lineup. I guess Miller missed the first three. But injuries happen. And this is the problem. And you saw it again. And we talked on, you know, one of the other pods the other day about, you know, I don't want to see Brock Besser with Brandon Sutter. In the first period last night, Sutter left for a seven or eight minute stretch. He returned to the game, but he was gone. And then JT Miller got in his fight. And all of a sudden, two of the guys that are playing center on the night, two of the top three, essentially, are no longer available to Travis Green. And you just, you saw, like, even with, you know, it's the Jenga game, right? You're just pulling the pieces out here. And you saw, like, that team, as constructed, nowhere close to good enough. So uh, I'm with you. Like, a month ago, and it is, the trading deadline, as we record this, it's the 11th of March. And so we are now essentially one month. The countdown is on. Uh, You can start your, your, your counters one month to the NHL trade deadline. And... In the moment, I get it, and I'm with you. Like, I don't think the fans enjoy watching the Canucks get buried like they did, but at the same time, it would have been the wrong thing for this team to somehow string together a bunch of victories and allow people power to get a false impression of what this hockey club actually is. So that's why I said when I started, like, it was the the bucket of cold water, right? Like, it was thrown directly in their face last night. Totally. And and look, this... Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think that this club is ready quite yet to begin to pursue the long-term things that need to happen, very clearly need to happen with you know, due focus and urgency just yet. Like and and the problem is is we're what almost exa- we're exactly a month out from the deadline now. We're exactly a month yeah. out. Yeah. So it's April 12th. It's March 12th today. And, you know, I think over the next week anyway, next week to 10 days, they're going to take a very serious run at re-signing Tanner Pearson. This isn't state secrets. Jim Benning told us that. But that's going to start in earnest over the next week to 10 days. 
Um, you know, I think the league, I don't think, I know that there are teams around the league that rate Tanner Pearson that think he can help and that would be interested in acquiring him if the price is right. Um, especially if the Canucks can retain salary and help make it work in terms of, you know, making it relatively cap neutral. Uh, Tanner Pearson remains a good top nine player, uh, but he's 28 and he's on pace for what? 26, 25 points over the course of an 82 game season. Uh, he has what one goal in how many games you're the, you're the splits master. I bet, you know, he has three goals in his last 19 games. Those are his only points. He hasn't, doesn't have an assist in the last 19 games. So three and O. Oh, in the last 19 games uh, for Tanner Pearson. Right. Nine points on the season. So what are we talking about? Like, this is a no-brainer. You trade him if you can get a second. That's a huge win. If you can get a third, that's a big win. And even if all you can do is get a player that you kind of like who's crunchy for expansion reasons, even if all you're doing is replicating the Tyler Mott deal, um, you know, the Thomas Vanek Mott deal, like... That might be a win. Like that might that's more likely to help you when this team is ready to contend than a 30 or 31-year-old Tanner Pearson. Like it just is what it is. And you know, I like Pearson as a person. I've enjoyed covering him. Um I've enjoyed watching him play. I think he's, you know, the type of person and player you win with if you're in a certain cycle of your development. But if you sign Pearson to a and look, look, I think 3 years at 275 would probably be seen around the industry anyway as like relatively team friendly. Um, I think there's almost zero chance that that contract provides surplus value from the very moment it's signed. Like from year one, I think it's unlikely to provide surplus value. And I think it's extraordinarily likely that by the third year, you're looking at, you know, a, a third or fourth liner who you're paying 2.75 million and that just means that we're doing this all over again, J-Pat, right? It's like, right. It's yep. like yep. for all those fans who are like, yeah, well, all the bad contracts expire. And it's like, they don't if you keep signing them. Like, they don't. They don't if you keep signing them. Um, it's like that meme of the guy pointing at his head. You know what I mean? It's like, the bad contracts won't expire. The bad contracts for bottom six players won't expire if I keep doing new ones. Um, that's the road we're walking down. Like, that's the road that this organization is likely to walk down more likely than not over the pack over the next two weeks. Um, you know, that, that should dent like that dents my confidence just as an analyst. And, and I think it should dent this market. So uh, anyway, we'll, we'll bring Harmon. We'll get into Pearson. But as I look ahead to what's next, it's like, man, everything you can do to net some future assets, to carve out additional cap flexibility, like it's all going to matter a ton especially as, you know, the Canucks are facing another complicated offseason this summer, um, another um, a complicated offseason with, you know, sort of budgetary questions for the 2021-22 campaign. And, you know, they're 18 months out probably from icing a team that we all look at and say that's a team that can really compete. And so everything, everything should be done with that, with September 2022 in mind from this point forward. And I just don't know that they're ready to do that. Well, you and Harm with a deep dive on sort of what to do with Tanner Pearson. So we'll get to Harm here in a sec. But you also mentioned the goaltending. And I just want to say uh, phenomenal stuff from Kevin Woodley with us oh. the other day. If people haven't had a chance, like that part of the pod, even though it was recorded the other day, like it will stand for a while. And if you haven't had a chance, like, I highly recommend 
if you at all care about Canucks goaltending now and moving forward in the future of Ian Clark. Like some really solid stuff from Kevin Woodley, and we got lots of great feedback. So thank you to everybody that uh, was with us. And I know people want us to get Kev back on uh, the podcast and, and in time, but he's got his own podcast. He's got his own thing going. So you can check him out at Kevin is in goal. Uh, that's his Twitter handle in Ingoal Magazine. All right, Tom, let's bring our athletic colleague Harm Dial into the mix here. It's been uh, overdue to get Harmon back on the on the VanCast. So, Harm, thanks for doing this, first of all. And, look, I, there's a bunch of big-picture stuff that we're going to get into, but Tom and I tried to put into words what we all witnessed last night at the rink. You were there, too. Uh, did that feel like uh, transporting back to, to mid-January for you? It did, absolutely. I think there were all the ingredients there that made this team so ineffective in January. I mean, whether it was the puck management, whether it was the defensive breakdowns, the the bad pinches, just leaving your goaltender out to dry. Uh, I mean, I think what we could at least appreciate in January was even when the club wasn't winning games, they were at least competitive and they at least looked like they belonged. And this was just one of those games where you could just see that in every department, the Canucks were completely outclassed. And I think, you know, not just the fact that not just the fact that they lost, but the manner in which they did is it's it, it's the dose of reality I think that they needed because I mean we we've had this conversation a lot over the past couple of weeks is like the last thing this team needs is a big run ahead of the trade deadline to give them false right. hope and I think this was just a reminder that this team just isn't good enough and so you've got to be proactive you've got to realize that hey there should be no more let's see where we're at before the deadline because where we're at is clearly not good enough well let's pick up on the convo that Tom and I were having just before we brought you in and that was Tanner Pearson and you guys did the deep dive earlier in the week and I certainly would direct people to go uh, read it but as we kind of jump in here Pearson remains one of their trade chips he has no trade protection here but let's just start with what Tanner Pearson is in your mind as a player right now. And we went through the numbers. They're not pretty. He's not having a terribly productive season with nine points at the 30-game mark, only three points in his last 19. So not exactly selling a high on Tanner Pearson these days if, in fact, they move him. But what do you make of the season that he's had? Yeah, I mean, clearly we haven't seen the same level of offensive production. Obviously, it's also important to keep in mind that when you look at his numbers last year, he had... I think it was six goals and nine points coming from empty nets. So last year's numbers right. are a little bit inflated. I think this year's numbers are a little bit deflated. I still don't think he's played uh, up to his potential. But just in terms of his individual points percentage, shooting clip, uh, a little bit unfortunate not to have a couple more points here and there. But ultimately, that wouldn't really move the needle too much on his production so far. I think right now he's he's a true talent third line forward who's being asked to, asked to play a little bit higher in the lineup than he should be. Uh, he's still got I think a dependable two way game, and although the raw underlying numbers don't really love him, but I think a lot of that is a product of the fact that he's playing exceptionally difficult matchup minutes. Uh, and so he's a versatile piece that can kind of in a pinch move up your lineup. Uh, he's got that championship experience, which I think a lot of teams are going to covet at the deadline. And, you know, he's just this low-fuss player that I think Tom always refers to him as zero-maintenance. And I think that's just the perfect descriptor for what he is. In a pinch, he can also kill penalties. I think there are just a ton of qualities you like about him right now. But he's at that age where he's turning 29 years old before the start of next season. And this is the age where a lot of players who fit his bill tend to 
rapidly decline. And I think that's why this is such a dangerous path to walk down in terms of potential extension. Harmon, when you look at Pearson, what do you think he'd be worth on the trade market? I mean, you know, we talked about it earlier uh, on this podcast before you joined us. And I, I noted that, you know, I, I was aware of some teams that that had interest um, were he to shake loose, were the Canucks to decide to shop him. But what, what would you expect a return to look like on a Tanner Pearson deal? And is it worth doing, even if it is, something a little more modest, like a third or a fringe roster player? Right. I think what I did was, for the piece, I went back and looked at the last three three trade deadlines and kind of looked for players of a, of a similar range, kind of top six or third line guys. And I think there are really two tiers. If you look at the average run-of-the-mill top six forward, uh, and this includes guys like Tyler Toffoli, Gustav Nyquist, uh, Matt Zuccarello in 2019, uh, even Michael Grabner in, in that one year where he had like 25 goals uh, with the Rangers. Uh, the bar there kind of seems to be like a second-round pick and then like a pretty significant second piece, right? So in Toffoli's case, it was a second in Madden. Uh, with Nyquist, it was when he got traded to the Sharks, a second and a third. Uh, Ryan Dezingle, a second, a second, and Anthony DeClaire, Zuccarello, second and third. So I think you can kind of see where the average top six forward kind of stacks up. Now, Pearson's obviously not that caliber of a player right now. So that kind of sets the upper bound range of you're probably not going to expect more than, especially in this climate where it's going to be a buyer's market. I, I think second round pick is probably the, the ceiling roughly of, of what you're shooting for. Uh, and then on the flip end, the the kind of second tier of forwards, filling out the absolute, I think, uh, floor of what Pearson would be worth. You've got guys like uh, Vlad Domestikov, uh, Ennis going for mid-round picks. But I, I think the closest comps, I mean, Marlowe went for a third last year. Uh, Kovalchuk went for a third last year. Um, Haglin a little while ago, who I still think is a pretty decent comp in terms of player quality, a third and a sixth. So I think even in this sort of buyer's market, you're probably looking at either, I mean, hopefully you can nab a second. If not, a third still seems like a pretty reasonable bet. Um, another guy that was in that range, Patrick Maroon, uh, when he got uh, he got moved to the devil. So I think that's the kind of window you're looking at when you when you look at the precedent. And I still think it's that's a trade worth making because a third round pick may not sound like much, but that could be the piece that you use uh, to sort of you know, poach an expansion team that has to give up a good young forward, right? Like we've talked about this uh, a lot where expansion teams, the Canucks' position where now they probably don't have to protect Vertanen or even Gaudet, they have the flexibility to bring in uh, a forward that another team might not be able to keep. So that draft pick could be important currency from that front. It could be important currency to help help get you out of one of your bad contracts, maybe last year of Roussel or Beagle or Louis. Um, it's just the team needs as many trade assets as it can, because even when you look at this roster right now, um, maneuvering, there's just not a whole lot that you can deal out to bring in help. And I think whatever you can get back for, for Pearson, even if it doesn't sound like a lot, even if it is a modest return would be important ahead of an off season where there are going to be unique opportunities. Yeah. And in terms of the other players on the roster that are expiring. Um, have you thought much or broken down comps for some of the guys like Sutter, like Jordy Ben, like 
Uh, I think that's really those. Oh, Hamannick or or even an Alex Edler. Like, what sort of returns if the Canucks were to go full bore, you know, sellers for the next four weeks? And and granted, and I think it's important to note that we don't really know how easy it's going to be to sell at all in in a world with sixteen teams and LTI and quarantines and on and on. But if the world, if the Canucks were in a normal world anyway to go full bore seller, do you have thoughts on? what sort of net return you'd expect from some of those other pieces that are maybe a little bit more in the background in terms of our seller's consideration set. Right. So I think obviously Edler would be kind of in a different category where if he somehow did, was willing to move his his no move, which he probably wouldn't be, then I think his return would be in a different class compared to some of the other pieces you mentioned. But when it comes to kind of like the Ben tier, uh, the Hamannick, the Sutters, I think if you were aggressively to try and flip those guys, you're probably looking at compiling a whole bunch of mid-round picks, which again, doesn't seem like a, a, doesn't seem like a significant return. But when you pile those up, you can really take a lot of flyers on a bunch of those reclamation projects, those, um, you know, Finding finding the next kind of player that's undervalued on a team that, you know, maybe he hasn't had an opportunity. And again, with the expansion draft coming up, if you can take a bunch of those flyers and you and you hit on just one or two of them, that's going to make a world of a difference for your roster, whether that's up front, on the back end. So, I mean, if you look at, I, I, I think to me, the, the most straight up um, deal for instance, uh, if the Canucks decide that they're not going to re-sign him for expansion purposes, um, Jordy Ben, right? His versatility to play both sides. He's got the rugged physical game, kills penalties, experience, experience playing playoff hockey. Like he's the ideal depth defenseman, I think, uh, that a lot of teams in the industry would look at him as. And so we've seen a couple teams recently go go down and, and kind of have a need for defensemen, right? Montreal just lost Ben Sherrod, although... They still, they're still a pretty deep team on the back end. Um, you know, Winnipeg's always going to be looking for, for help on the blue line. And that's where even you've got Travis Hamnick, right? He maybe hasn't, um, he, he, he obviously isn't the same player he once was. But again, same sort of thing in a depth role. A lot of the similar kind of attributes that, uh, that Ben has in terms of the physical game, the ability to kill penalties. And he still has a little bit of uh, name brand value, I think. So, um, you know, those kind of pieces, you've just got to, you, you can't look at a lot of, you, you can't just say, oh, guy like Brandon Sutter, is it worth the, the, the maneuver, the creative maneuvering if we're only going to get a third, uh, a mid round pick back. If you do them all collectively, if you move out Sutter, Ben, Hamannick, I mean, those could be three mid round picks and all of a sudden you've got the ability to, okay, maybe one of those picks gets you out of the last year of a bad contract. The second one of those picks gets you back a forward you'd like to take a flyer on uh, from an expansion target. Uh, and then maybe you do a third one on a defenseman you like, right? Like these are the the, the kinds of um, moves that in an ordinary offseason, a, mid, mid, a bunch of mid-round picks might not be worth a lot. But again, with the unique opportunities that the expansion draft is going to offer on the trade market, I think, uh, and again, with the bad contract contracts component and what having sweeteners could mean, I think it's it's... The leverage of bringing in a mid-round pick is a lot higher than it would be in normal times for the Vancouver Canucks. You know, it's funny that the Hamannick to Winnipeg one to me just makes sense on so many levels. Like we know that he only wants to play in Western Canada. He's from Winnipeg. 
It looks like the Jets are going to be a playoff team. This is a guy that opted out of the bubble, didn't take part in playoff hockey last year. Like, if there was one place that he might accept the trade to and he's got trade protection, it might be to go home to Winnipeg. And so that, to me, feels like something that the Canucks absolutely should be exploring because he's been better since coming back from injury. Uh, the bar was awfully low because those first five games he played after a year off, he wasn't very good. And, and certainly the numbers uh, back that one up. But but it is incredible, isn't it, Harm, that, you know, as we sit here 30 games into the season, the Canucks are running all these defensemen that are over 30. They're a terrible team. And like we're no further ahead on, you know, can Jalen Chatfield play? Brogan Rafferty, you think of the howls from the fan base to play Brogan Rafferty last year. And he had a great American Hockey League season. He got into one game and didn't look very good at the NHL level. And even Ole Levy on the outside looking in right now. Like, I'm not sure that they're doing wonders for development uh, for this next group of defensemen. Right. And the other thing that I don't think gets discussed enough is what's kind of the succession plan for Edler, right? Because even if you do, let's say, bring him back on a cheap one-year deal, how long can you really depend on him to play these tough matchup minutes? You can see it by the day where Edler's slowing down. He just doesn't have that ability to pivot anymore. And the impact, you know, in transition has never really been there, but it's becoming more and more of an issue. And so you can't really count on count on him as a top four defenseman anymore. And, and when you do look at a lot of matchup data, you can still see that the coaching staff has to rely on him uh, in, in in these tough defensive minutes, in part because some of the high-end defensemen, or I shouldn't even say high-end defensemen, some of the other top four, some of the other players playing in the top four are kind of offensively calibrated when you look at Hughes, Myers, even a guy like Nate Schmidt, uh, their calling card is more in transition, is more what they do on the offensive side as opposed to strictly in-zone defense, being able to break up the cycle, clear out the front of the net, those qualities and so you've got to, like, you already needed a top four defenseman to play with Quinn Hughes because clearly I don't think Hammock is a long-term fit. Like, he's, lo- he's looked a lot better recently, for sure. Uh, but I think, you know, next season and beyond, you do ideally want an upgrade there. So you already needed that upgrade. And then beyond that, uh, you've got to replace Edler, right? So at the bare minimum, you need a you need one top four defenseman just to kind of keep pace with what you had this past season, uh, especially because Tom Myers is going to be another year older. And I saw it the other day. I was really surprised to see Myers leads Canucks defenseman in five and five ice time on a per game basis, on a raw basis, and you're just not going to win too many hockey games when Myers is your most deployed defenseman. Like that's just the fact of the matter. He is probably a number five at this stage where again, he's got some redeeming offensive qualities, got pretty good puck skills, but defensively you're just seeing the inability to really defend and and he's being asked to do too much right now. And again, so the back end, that is such a big question mark moving into next season. It, It feels like after Hughes and Schmidt, there's just nothing there right now, and and that's where you've got to hope, uh, you've got to hope that Jack Rathbone is ready. But even then, are you are you going to expect him to play high degree of difficulty minutes in the top four right away? That's that's a question that um, I'm not sure that we have the answer to right now. Uh, Tom, I don't know if you caught. I, I loved the correction there, Harm, and you were bang on. You, you referred to them as top four defensemen, and then you doubled back and said 
players that are playing in the top four. And I think that's a, <laughs> I think that's a far more apt description of, of what the Canucks are at this stage of the proceedings. Tom, what can they do with Edler? Like, can they, you know, could they give him the Hamannick deal and say, take it or leave it? Or is that too big a slap in the face to a guy that, you know, has just been a career Canuck defenseman? It, it just depends on how you handle it, right? Like, I mean, we've seen players want to stay in markets and take less as they've aged out. Uh, we've seen it in Vancouver. We saw it with Sammy Sallow, right? I mean, Sammy Sallow was still pro- was a player who could have easily at various points in his career, gone and chased, you know, a, a Matthias Olin style contract. Um, and, and he really didn't until the very end with Tampa Bay. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, we've seen it before. It's possible. It's doable. It just requires, you know, a, a certain level of frankness and, and open communication. And, um, you know, we'll see. I, I honestly wouldn't be shocked by that outcome. But, you know, I also do think you can begin, like we've seen guys – and we've seen teams like the St. Louis Blues used to do this every year with Keith Kachuk, right? They'd send him to the Thrashers, and then he'd re-sign in free agency on a one-year deal, and the next year he'd be dealt again to the Coyotes or the New York Rangers, whatever, right? Like, they literally, multiple years, re-sign Kachuk on a one-year deal and trade him at the deadline to go, you know, be a Merc somewhere. Um, I, I mean, I think that's an option, and uh, I, I think that's something that, you know, Canucks should consider, but will he wave? Uh, I don't have any appetite for that conversation. Harm, <laughs> you had a, uh, a chart, what was it, 10 days ago, uh, about the depth scoring of the Vancouver Canucks. And and this is in a year where Brandon Sutter raced out to six goals, had more goals than Elias Pettersson. We were charting that on a regular basis here on the pod for the first month of the season. Tyler Mott, I think, had a share of the team lead. He got to five goals early, and yet, like... And look, this whole podcast is just about keeping things real here. So, like, I, I was shocked, and and you know, we all cover this team on a daily basis. But when you had the comparative chart to every other team and its depth scoring, and the Canucks were right down there at the bottom, like, what is your level of confidence that this improves? Not just this year, but are we going to be having the same kind of conversation a year from now when we bring you on the pod? Well, I really hope not because the market just deserves so much better. But I mean, you really have to, I think the biggest thing right now is you have limited cap flexibility. I think your bets are hedged on your potential internal options. And that means a lot of expectation, a lot of hope, right? Whether it's right or wrong is going to be on Vasily Pod Colson to be, to kind of have uh, the, the kind of impact that Nils Holglander has had. In his rookie year, and even a guy like Cole Lind, right? He's, I believe, 22 right now. By next season, we're going to have, we should have an answer of whether he's an NHL player or not. And if he is, then you'd hope that he can help out and be an upgrade in the bottom six. Uh, even a piece like Adam Gaudet, if he is going to come back, then you do hope to see some level of progression, even though based on his age, it's not a, a very likely. Bet and, and and I mean you know we we ran through like one stat that I find so interesting is there's been a discussion such such a discussion about kind of like the the top players and you know I went back and since the start of last season when you look at the splits of when Elias Pettersson is uh, on the ice versus when he's off of it so with Pettersson on the ice the Canucks are plus twenty eight at five and five since the start of last season. 
With Pedersen off the ice, they're minus 40 at 5-on-5. Five five. Like, it's a gulf of a difference. And that just goes to show, like, it's not just the bottom six at this point. Like, Bo Horvat genuinely doesn't have enough help right now. He's being asked to do too much in terms of he's got the tough matchups because they don't have a third line that can that that uh, can play straight up. They need to shelter that third line. So he's being asked to play the tough matchups and... You know, Pearson isn't really a top six caliber forward at this stage. And, and on the right side, he's, he's playing with Jake Vertanen, right? Like, we're going through the same conversation, the same dialogue of, of Bo needs help. And that just goes to show that, um, again, when you look at what the Horvat line is going through at 5-on-5 five five, since the start of last season, they're clear, they've clearly been below water too. So right now, this is this is a one-line team. And, and when you go through the sort of development of what happened this year. At the start of the year, the Horvat line was really going. But the the catch, the caveat there was the Pedersen line wasn't going, right? And then ultimately when Pedersen started to turn things around at 5-on-5, five five, the Horvat line started going dry. And so that just goes to show you that through this entire season, this has been only one line has been going at any one given time. And so let's let's even forget the bottom six for a second. We've got to build a second line that can chip in and contribute before we worry about the rest of the roster. So that's my biggest worry right now. And and that's why I think if you are able to somehow, whether it's it's finding the next Carter Verhage, finding the next uh, attractive expansion player who can help out your top, top six, it's going to have that uh, trickle-down effect where guy slots into your top six. Well, then all of a sudden, maybe Nils Hoaglander or a Vasily Podkolzin can play on your third line, and that's the key to getting the bottom six going as well. So it's just um, it's a tough spot to be in, especially because of the lack of flexibility, and, and I think it's why a lot of people look at, okay, they've got a ton uh, of improvement that they need to make on the back end. They've got all these pieces that, that they need to add uh, up front. That's why I think a lot of people look at the cap situation, look at the pieces they need, and say two years as, as your window to really be uh, a competitive team. Harmon, I, I want to just ask you one quick thing, and this is something, you know, we've talked about briefly, but not in depth. And so I'm putting you on the spot a bit, but with Pedersen and Hughes on the ice together, five on five, right? Last season, the Canucks were the best team by shot attempt differential and outscored their opponents by 17. Just a massive, like they laid waste at the top end of their lineup. Two opponents at five on five did it in the bubble too, right? That's basically how they defeated Minnesota and St. Louis. This year, with Hughes and Pedersen on the ice together, five on five, the Canucks have been outscored by two and are just basically treading water in terms of shot attempt differential and the underlying metrics. Do you see anything for that explains that? Like, I find that completely baffling, um, especially considering the quality of those two players and the way they seem to think the game alike when they're on the ice together yeah no absolutely and I think I think with Hughes it's been so interesting because I've watched him play and he just seems a little bit I mean we've seen what's happened defensively right like that's not um you know that's no secret right now I think when you look at his I, I don't know everything that he does right now. And I think, you know, obviously this is part of just his body language and, and who he kind of is, but it just seems like he's even more lackadaisical than he is in most years. Uh, usually when he goes back and retrieves pucks for potential breakouts, 
he has that ability to, to just so effortlessly effortlessly shake a four checker. And what was so impressive last season was he barely turned the puck over despite how much uh, he created in transition. And this year it just seems like, and, and we saw signs of it again last night, where you know he still is, he still has that excellent skating ability, but he's just not shaking four checkers and creating that separation the same way that he was last year. He's turning the puck over a lot more. Um, with his off in the offensive zone, he his decision making in terms of when to pinch and when to stay at home and, and and kind of hold his position, I think that's been a little bit off. And you know, how, how many shifts did we see last season where Hughes would just take the puck, walk the blue line, do his button hooks, uh, activate down the wall, and it just seems like some of those dynamic elements aren't there either. Uh, and I'm not sure, you know, what exactly it is, but just that explosiveness, just that. Um, you know, again, it, it almost feels like he's half a step slower in everything he does, uh, whether it's his decision-making, whether it's his skating, whether, um, it was, I mean, I go back to that five on three opportunity that they had, and I think that was one example of it. So no, no doubt about it. I mean, when you look at the top end and, uh, even just with, with Pedersen, like last year, that gave them such a mammoth advantage. Uh, I think they outscored opponents by 26 at 5-on-5 five five with Pedersen on the ice. This year, they're only plus two. And, uh, you know, I, I went through the numbers of, of uh, each top line in the NHL by goal differential. I think the Canucks were pretty close to the top five last year, if not comfortably in it, in terms of the, the goal differential that their uh, first line was driving. Right now, I think they're 21st. Right, and the correlation of first lines and and the team success is, you know, when I when I broke down the numbers, it's very high. Like when you look at the the teams that have uh, uh, some of the top first lines, I think it was if you're top twelve on that list of having the best first lines, eight of those teams were also in the top ten in standings wise for points percentage. Right, so having a top end that can uh, outclass the opposition matters a ton and it's clear that you know whether it's been Pedersen whether it's been Miller whether it's been Hughes Vancouver's best players haven't been as good as they were last last season now where I think it's interesting and I think why sometimes you know we don't like a lot of people will say why do you fixate so much on the bottom bottom end of the roster when the best guys haven't been the best guys and there is some degree of truth to that but I think it's a lot easier to look at this roster and say, well, going into next season, we expect Pedersen, Hugh, Pedersen and Hughes, you know, I'd bet on them to bounce back. And I know you would, you guys would too. That's an easy, far easier sort of solution than looking at, you know, the rest of the roster, you know, whether it's on the back end, whether it's on, you know, the second line or the bottom six, it's a lot easier to feel okay going to sleep at night about your top guys than it is the rest of the roster because you know Pedersen and Hughes are going to figure it out. So I think that's just the rationale for why we maybe haven't had the discussion as much because you're right, that that was such a difference maker for them last last season and that Pedersen-Hughes combination has been has been flat for them this year. Look, it was all going perfectly well. And then you had to go and reference that five on three from the other night. And that, if there was a trap door on this podcast, I would have hit the button and that would have been it because that we don't speak of that five on three anymore uh, here on the VanCast. It was that bad. Uh, I see you're working on a mailbag that uh, is coming up here, I would imagine. What, uh, what else is in the mind of Harmon Dial these days that uh, people can look forward to? Yeah, I'm... Uh... 
Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> I think uh, I think we're I, I think Tom and I are prob- probably going to shift into prospects pretty soon here. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be nice to check in on Rathbone, and Pod Coles, and everyone else in the system uh, to kind of look at you know who could help this washer out in the in the near future, and then uh, and then beyond that, I'm sure we'll we'll tackle a bunch of uh, trade deadline stuff. There's you know, no no doubt whether they go out and re-sign a guy like Pearson or, or whatever they do at the deadline, there's going to be a ton, of, ton to talk about. So we'll be there to cover it all. <laughs> Great stuff. You guys collaborated on the armies last night uh, trying to put a spin on whatever that was that we we watched at Rogers Arena Harm as always great stuff in print and uh, always good to get you here on the VanCast as well so thanks for doing this thanks for having me all right thanks to Harm for stopping by here on the VanCast long overdue sobering for it, uh, from from <laughs> boy genius some sobering uh, hey, takes before- <laughs> I know hey, look this has been the reality check podcast today it's just Sorry, it is what it is. As opposed to all our Uh, other podcasts where we've been glowingly optimistic. (laughs) Okay, there's that. Oh, my goodness. But the last few few have been done against the backdrop of uh, a little mini win streak midseason. This one last night, again, nowhere to hide from that kind of performance. True. All right, Tom, as we wrap up this episode of the VanCast, uh, we have done this throughout the season, of course. Uh, we check in on our high-stakes bet. Well, there is one stake that's only available by special request. Uh, we call it uh, Sirloin-a-Lot. It's uh, the size of a boogie board. Ooh, I'll have that one. And a drink? Meatballs. Very good, sir. And uh, again, when the Canucks only score a goal here and a goal there, it makes updating the bet pretty easy. Uh, but Brock Besser has been along with Thatcher Demko and Niels Hoaglander. I mean, those have been the good news stories, I think, uh, across the board consistently for the Vancouver Canucks. And Besser did it again last night. You know, we always talk about him being a guy that needs the puck on his stick a little bit more and he wants to pick his spots. But damn, uh, I'll sign up for that. Uh, You know, again, if they need a different shooting option from time to time, it's nice to know that he's got the one-timer there in his back pocket. We don't see it a ton, but uh, it's just nice to know. I mean, that that was the Ovechkin goal last night. Yeah, and did you see in the armies that it was the first official slap shot goal that he scored since I did. the eighteen nineteen season? That was wild. That blew that my mind. Yeah. But you know he has been he has been moving in and out of that spot, and I think his wrist shot has been you know uh, his better weapon, especially over the last couple of years. But I think it's a testament too to like I know that we've seen Besser score that goal, and we saw it more often earlier on in his career. But I felt like that goal was sort of a testament to his evolution, not not a devolution back to what he what we saw from him in his first year, but his evolution in in particular his ability to sort of be effective anywhere the Canucks have slotted him on that one three one. Like he's been better on his downhill side than he has been in the past. He's he was effective there. That was a howitzer goal. And look, as much as people clamor to have him in that shooting spot, I mean this was his first slapper goal in two hockey seasons. Um, but I think he's done really well at the net front. Like I, I, how many of those Bo Horvat bumper goals that we saw, especially earlier in the year when he was hot came from quick puck movement between Miller and Besser. Like Besser has filled that Toffoli role, the role that Toffoli made his own, despite pretty limited reps in his short time in Vancouver. Um, ably really well. I've liked the power moves. I've liked the way that he's attacked the net front. I've liked his passing from that spot. So, um, you know, but the fact that Besser can line up essentially in three spots and be effective in that one three one, like that's a weapon for the Canucks and a weapon that they'll have at their disposable disposal for years to come. 
Uh, crazy to think he's like, what, is he five goals? Is he at 15 now? He's Or no, he's at 14. 14. 14. So, but he's only six yeah. goals away from 20. Uh, it, you know, after a season in which he didn't hit 20 in, what, 50 games? Um, pretty pretty impressive stuff from Besser. Clearly Vancouver's best and most consistent player this year. Yeah, he's at 14 at the 30-game mark. I had him pegged for 20. You had him at 21. So nice. he's certainly trending nice. in that direction. like that. I should have gone higher. Uh, Horvat. <laughs> Again, this, Ooh, is the, I know. this was the this biggest difference. We one. think Horvat's going to be the swing in this thing. Yep. You have him pegged for 23. I have him at 17. He's sitting on 11. And we've talked about his line mates have gone sort of ice cold on him here. Uh, Pedersen not playing right now. He's got 10 goals at the 30-game mark. Was starting to produce a little more regularly before he got hurt. He's going to miss a, uh, a little bit more time. Certainly sounds like he won't play Saturday. Here's a wrinkle. If they keep Besser in that spot, that hurts me for my Bo Horvat goal uh, tally, right? If you've got yeah. if you've got a strong yeah. side guy at that left circle, then that pass uh, becomes a bigger weapon. That pass into the bumper spot becomes a bigger weapon from that spot. I think the logic of me expecting Bo Horvat to lead this team in goals uh, re- really counted on JT Miller uh, being a fixture in that left circle. So if, if that Besser shot keeps him in that spot for a bit here, uh, beyond Pedersen's return to the lineup from injury, um, that could be trouble for me. Oh, that would be a shame. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyways, if, they, if they're only going to score a goal a game here, it's going to make updating the, uh, oh, the state bet sort of tedious as we go here. So uh, Besser with it. Yeah. Yeah. Besser with 14, he's the guy. They only have three guys on this team that are in double digits at the 30-game mark. So there are a bunch of players that need to pick things up. Look, I get that there was sort of this downer uh, vibe to this podcast. But again, it's on the heels of a 5-1 loss where they got absolutely shelled. Uh, We do try to have fun from time to time. And so I I just want to point out that uh, our colleague, the Stanchion, he tweeted out last night, if you were on a two-on-one with Brandon Sutter and he had the puck, what would you do? You got to go see the responses. It, it, like, if you need a laugh today in the wake of whatever that was at Rogers Arena last night, check out the stand. I mean, the stanchion will provide lots of laughs, but uh, <laughs> just check out that thread in particular. The best. Uh, some very creative answers about what people would do if they're on a two on one with Brandon Sutter and the man with the one helper all season at the 30 game mark uh, was in possession of the puck. Sutter does not fare well in this podcast. Generally, like the last, especially the last week, it's been pretty tough for Brandon Sutter on this podcast. It's been like, don't want to see him play with that guy. Nope. Pass on that. Oh, uh, don't want him to be on a two on one with Brandon Sutter either. He's had a tough go the last three van casts. <laughs> uh, I think it's been longer than just three van casts. Tom. He's got one assist at the 30 game mark. Come on. I know. I, and we're talking about him as a trade ship. That's the crazy part in all of this. Uh, Craig Custance and the Full 60 present the Prospect Series. And you're talking about prospects, and that's where we are uh, with 26 games to go. It's already it's looking ahead, what's coming down the pipeline for the Vancouver Canucks and others. But they've got the Prospect Series going at the uh, with the Athletics, Corey Pronman and Scott Wheeler. That's Thursday at the Athletic. That's a podcast. Uh, you can check it out, the Full 60. Also, uh, and we're getting lots of comments now to our uh, comment section for each podcast episode at the Athletic app. So we really appreciate all of the feedback. And again, we got a ton of it for uh, the Kevin Woodley appearance here on that last pod. If you missed that one, I would highly recommend you go check it out. Rate and subscribe to the VanCast on Apple. And if you're not already a subscriber, go to theathletic.com slash VanCast. Receive a subscription for just $3.99 a month. A couple of days between games now for the Vancouver Canucks. And then, oh, look, it's a visit from... McDavid and Dreisaitl, who absolutely laid waste 
to the Ottawa Senators last night. Uh, Canucks wrap up the homestand on Saturday, and then they're out on the road into Ottawa and into Montreal. Oh, great. <laughs> More games against the Montreal Canadiens on the horizon yeah. for the Vancouver Canucks. So we'll see the state of their game by the time they arrive in Montreal, but uh, there is some hockey to be played between now and then, and we'll see how they fare against uh, the Oilers superstars on Saturday night. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing the Oilers. Of course, Ken Holland inherited a team with two world-class forwards, um, which means that it's inevitable that he will be in the Stanley Cup next season. Uh, because three years after you inherit a team with two elite forwards, no matter what, you're bound to be in the Stanley Cup final and you get no credit for it, I, I, if, in case anyone's forgotten the rules. Okay, well, that's good. It's important to uh, just remind people from time to time. And, and let's finish with this, because what a project. What a project. And I think you lay out a compelling case for the Vancouver Canucks. They haven't been winning a lot lately. I know they had a little win streak, but overall, big picture, not a lot of wins for the Vancouver Canucks. I think they get a win in their battle of how bad is it with the <laughs> Buffalo Sabres that you have laid out with John Vogel. Uh, like, what a crazy exercise, but uh, a fantastic read. Yeah, a lot of fun. Uh, you know, it's essentially, down goes Brown. Sean McIndoe at The Athletic decided to host a misery symposium between a Sabres writer and a Vancouver Canucks writer, laying out which fan base has had it worse uh, between the expansion cousins over the last 51 years. It's not close. It's Vancouver. Uh, like, I think I won the symposium. I think I win the debate, but I don't think I had to work that hard for it. So I'm not going to take too much credit. Um, you know, I, I inherited a, a great core of uh, of misery to work from. And uh, and so, um, you know, I'll... I, I, Look, I think I won. I think it's clear. But, man, the facts are just so apparently in Vancouver's favor. I, I just can't get over that the Canucks have the lowest. Like, of the 31 NHL franchises, there's two with a lower win percentage point by point percentage than the Canucks over the entire course of the franchise's history. And one is the Arizona Coyotes-Winnipeg Jets franchise, and they've won a higher proportion of games than the Canucks since relocating to the desert. And the other is the Carolina Hurricanes, Hartford Whalers franchise, and they've won a higher perf uh, percentage of their points than the Canucks since they moved to Raleigh. So, like, the Canucks are 31 out of 31 all time in terms of point percentage in the market in which they currently play. And it's just so hard for me to overcome that. It's just like, that is absolutely devastating. Like, over 51 years, the Sabres have won the equivalent of two full hockey seasons more games. Than the Vancouver. That is insane. Two full that, that is like how do you insane? How do you and then and then everyone's like, oh, it was a goal, Brett Hall. That was should have been a, that should have that that was no goal. And it was like, <laughs> man, like whatever. First of all, first of all, whatever the rules were at the time, right? Like pucks off skates should count. They should. Secondly, I think that was a good goal. I always have thought that was a good goal. It was close, but man, what a dumb rule. And and that was close. Um. The idea that that one play allows the uh, allows the Sabers to fan base to claim that that's worse than '94 with Nathan Lafayette hitting the post and 2011 with you know this immaculate front runner team, one of the best regular season teams we'd seen in the Cap era until the 1819 Tampa Bay Lightning got swept in the first round. Um, you know, to to have that team just pull an absolute gas job in Game Seven when they are injured, battered, uh, just broken to see that team slowly break over the course of the Stanley cup final. Like I still don't think this market's over it. 
And so, yeah, I mean, you know, Stanley Cup final misery isn't even the Sabres ally in this in this fight with the Canucks. Like, Canucks fans, they were born in the darkness. It was a fun read, uh, even if the, the subject matter was somewhat daunting. I have to <laughs> laugh. My reaction to it, like, Vogel would present a point, and I'd be like, oh, God. And then you'd have the counter, and I'm like, damn. (laughs) (laughs) Even though I've lived it all. I mean, I've been here basically throughout the history of the Vancouver Canucks, but it was just the the way it was presented. I I think you made your case pretty compellingly. Thank you, sir. And just to bring this pod completely full circle, because as we've been doing this, I've been looking at the standings. And so this is my parting gift to our VIPs, that if, and the Canucks would have to level up, to play 500 the rest of the way, right? They're four games under 500. But for the sake of the argument here, before we go, if the Canucks go 500 the rest of the way, 13 wins, 13 losses, because of the games in hand and the fact that they've got 10 fewer regulation losses, Montreal could go something like 11 and 20 over its final 31 games and still finish ahead of the Vancouver Canucks. So if anybody is fooling themselves into looking at the standings and thinking the Canucks are that close... That is basically what oh. this all means after last night. They're only four or five points cool. out, J-Pat. Only five points out yeah. with 26 to well, play. Let's see, let's see where they are uh. the next time we convene for another edition of the VanCast for Harm and for Drancer. Uh, this is Jeff Patterson. Thanks so much, as always, for your support and your loyalty. We love doing this three a week. People were like, what are you going to talk about three a week now? And I don't think we've had any problems no. <laughs> coming up with Canuck content uh, in this week of three podcasts now. And we'll do three more next week as they play the Oilers on Saturday, then out on the road. That's going to do it for this edition of the VanCast here at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com.